Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app, where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. The app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Hi, if we haven't met yet, I'm Matt Van Cleve, one of the pastors at Blue Oaks. Uh, I'm excited about this new series we're starting today from the New Testament book of Titus. We're calling it Irresistible Influence. And I want to start today by talking about influence. Uh, This is how I would define influence. Uh, Influence is the ability to have an effect on the behavior of someone else. In his book, 360 Degrees of Influence, Harrison Monarth writes this, New York taxi cabs have a touchscreen on the back of the front seat suggesting how much passengers should tip the driver upon arriving at a destination. Big colorful buttons give the option of paying two, three, or four dollars if the fare is less than $15. If your fare is more than $15, the the buttons display percentages from 20 to 25 to 30%. Clearly counting on people's laziness or inability to calculate and self-select a fair tip, cabbies are happy to report that gratuities have shot way up, again due in part to these highly suggestive buttons that are tilted toward generosity. Uh, There are so many people in our world who influence us, from taxi cab drivers to celebrities to CEOs. John Maxwell lists a number of famous influencers. Uh, William Wallace leading the the charge of his warriors against the army that would oppress his people. Uh, Winston Churchill defying the Nazi threat as much of Europe had collapsed. Mahatma Gandhi leading a a 200-mile march to the sea to protest the Assault Act. Uh, Mary Kay Ash going on her own to create the world-class organization Mary Kay Cosmetics. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. standing before the Lincoln Memorial challenging the nation with his dream of reconciliation. Uh, Each of these people has made an impact that has touched millions of people. Uh, There are other types of influence as well, like uh, fashion police who have a huge influence over style. Uh, One day they say straight leg tight pants are in or tailored slim fit shirts are in or fluorescent yellow in workout gear is in or Birkenstocks are in or high rise baggy denim is in or bright purple colored sweatshirts are in. (laughs) And we all just march in lockstep because of the influence of fashion. We make lists every year of the 100 most influential people in business, sports, entertainment, and media. But I was thinking, reading through the book of Titus, getting ready for this series about spiritual influence. I was thinking about the ability to impact another human being's character, about the ability to affect another person's relationship with God. I was thinking if you were to create a list of the 10 most spiritually influential people in your life, who would they be? Maybe give some consideration to that today. Now, in our society, influence, just general influence, is usually based on quite temporal values. It's usually positional influence. It's based on someone's title or on their gifts or on their attractiveness or on their status. And when they lose their position or their money or their looks or when their term of office is over, their influence evaporates. But spiritual influence is another kind of influence altogether. And it's mysterious because spiritual influence is primarily the work of the Holy Spirit. 
Spiritual influence happens when a human being becomes so Christ-centered, when they're doing and saying the things Jesus would do and say, and the actual life and power and love and presence of Christ begins to change that human being, and other people see it. Uh, They see the difference Christ is making in a human being's life, and they realize they want that for their own life, and they begin to change. That's spiritual influence. And you may have experienced this in your life. I know I have. Spiritual influence is very often unrelated to positions or status or achievement. A spiritual influence is the primary way that Christian community gets formed. As we model a Christ-centered life for each other and teach each other and pray for each other and encourage each other and challenge each other as the Spirit guides us. And as you do that, you leave your fingerprints all over what matters most to God, which is his church. You can be a person of great spiritual influence in your home, uh, in your small group, uh, in your neighborhood, or in your workplace. Now, in the first chapter of Titus, we see the crucial role of spiritual influence in the church. Uh, This book of the Bible really is one of the most profound books to help us understand what makes a church healthy and strong. And if we could learn together from this book and live it out together in community, it really will mark us. But we see early on the the crucial role of spiritual influence in the church. We see, first of all, Paul's influence on Titus. Uh, He begins with the introduction of how God has sent him to proclaim faith to those God has chosen and to uh, teach them to know the truth that shows them how to live godly lives. And then he says in verse four, I am writing to Titus, my true son in the faith that we share. And I just want to reflect for a moment on the significance of that phrase, my my true son in the faith. What would be especially striking to anyone in the first century that read this letter is the fact that Paul was a Jew, but Titus was a Gentile. This meant they were sworn enemies. Like devout Jewish rabbis used to pray a prayer every day, thanking God that he did not make them a Gentile. A devout Jewish rabbi wouldn't touch a Gentile, wouldn't speak to a Gentile, wouldn't eat with a Gentile, and considered any contact with a Gentile to make him unclean. And here's Titus, a Gentile, and Paul, a Jew, but the love of Christ so transformed, so influenced Paul's heart that he reached out to a Gentile. And Titus was spiritually transformed largely through Paul's spiritual influence. Uh, Paul would take Titus with him on journeys. He would travel with him. He would eat with him and teach him and mentor him and pray for him. And Paul's fingerprints ended up all over Titus. If you read through Paul's letter to Corinth, uh, you realize the church at Corinth had some real serious problems. Uh, Paul refers to this letter in 2 Corinthians 7 as a severe letter because of the great sorrow it caused the Corinthians. Guess who had to deliver that letter? Titus. Titus was Paul's emissary who delivered that letter. And then Titus was the guy who had to deal with all the fallout because of that letter. To a large extent, when Paul sent that letter, he put the fate of the church of Corinth in Titus's hands. And they they received Titus with high regard. The text says that they received him with fear and trembling and a spirit of affection. And Titus was said to have walked in the same spirit with the people of Corinth. Titus was able to resolve very difficult problems which could have, been destro- which could have destroyed the, the church of Corinth. 
So Paul's fingerprints are all over Titus, his true son. And then Titus's fingerprints are all over the church of Corinth. And now as we open this letter in verse five, we find out that Paul is very concerned about the church in Crete. Uh, now Crete is actually an island to the south of Greece and it was made up of many towns. And so there are actually many churches on this one island that Paul is quite concerned about. And he says in verse five, I left you on the island of Crete so you could complete our work there and appoint elders in each town as I instructed you. Uh, there are really two classic passages in the New Testament that have to do with elders. Uh, one of them is right here in Titus, and then there's a very similar passage in 1 Timothy 3. Uh, Paul teaches that elders are to be people of spiritual influence. And I want to answer a couple of questions as we walk through this text. Uh, one of them is, why is it so important that a church have elders? Uh, what does an elder actually do? Uh, how do you eld if you are one? Uh, we'll look for a moment at what's happening in Crete because there are no elders here. This is verse 10 of Titus 1. For there are many rebellious people who engage in useless talk and deceive others. This is especially true of those who insist on circumcision for salvation. They must be silenced because they are turning whole families away from the truth by their false teaching, and they do it only for money. And then in Titus 3.10, uh, we get another little picture of what's going on in these churches in Crete. Paul says to Titus, if people are causing divisions among you, give a first and second warning. After that, have nothing more to do with them. This is very serious language. For people like that have turned away from the truth and their own sins condemn them. Now, Paul does not use this kind of language casually. The, the church in Crete is in very serious trouble. They face divisions. They, they face teach, uh, false teaching. They face uh, unconfronted sin. And the reason they face this has to do with the lack of spiritual influence. They lack the spiritual influence of effective elders. And I want to say a word or two about this because this happens a lot in churches. I've been a part of a number of churches in my life, and I want to tell you from personal experience, you have no idea what can happen when a church does not have effective spiritual leadership in place or when the wrong people serve as elders. Elders are like uh, guards for a community. I've read a little bit about the Lewis and Clark expedition, and they had to face a lot of uh, misbehavior in the soldiers that were with them, fighting, uh, drinking, theft, desertion. Do you know what behavior received the worst punishment? It was when someone fell asleep during guard duty. Now, even though this was an accidental deal, it was punishable by death. And there's a good reason for that because that's the one act that would place the whole community at risk. To be a guard was a sacred trust. Well, the same thing is true when it comes to a church because we face a very serious enemy and this enemy is a lot more serious than any Lewis and Clark faced. And when there is not appropriate elder influence, churches can drift off mission and no one ever identifies it or mentions it or corrects it. In churches that lack the spiritual influence of effective leadership, conflict gets mishandled uh, as it was here in Crete and unresolved conflict gets tolerated. This really happens in real churches more often than you can imagine. Factions form and people for whom Jesus died to make them brothers and sisters quit speaking to each other. And they believe the worst about each other. 
they say slanderous things about one another in loaded language behind each other's backs. Over time, the whole church, God's dream for community on this earth, gets poisoned by a spirit of bitterness. Also, a church's commitment to theological truth can get fuzzy and whole churches drift into theological error and heresy. Well, elders are to evaluate what is taught to make sure that churches are staying on course doctrinally. If they don't do that, teaching often becomes ineffective or even unbiblical and no one confronts it. Also, without mature elders overseeing an appropriate process of church discipline to make sure that wrongdoing is confronted appropriately, a church is just headed for disaster uh, because then there is no appropriate accountability and, and the church can get real vulnerable to financial mismanagement or to abuses of power, to a loss of trust. A church's spiritual integrity can get compromised. Now, anytime a church is being ineffectively led, or there is non-existent spiritual influence, the evil one rejoices because the damage that's done to God's dream, to his bride. And so I wanna spend our remaining time on another question about elders. And that is, how does someone become an elder? Who ought to be an elder? I wanna do this for two reasons. One is we're always looking to add to our elder board at Blue Oaks, and it's important for all of us to be real clear on the criteria as they're laid out in scripture. But there's a second reason I wanna look at this question. What kind of person ought to become an elder? And that is these criteria are something that we all should aspire to. God's goal is not that the church would have a few mature elders and then a bunch of real immature followers. His goal is that all of us should have the kind of maturity and character that would be characteristic of an elder. His goal is not to have a place where uh, there's real a real like top-down hierarchical community. And I get real concerned because there are a lot of churches that are that way, and that's not God's goal. His dream is to have a community of committed, mature, responsible, discerning men and women of God. And so we'll look at the marks of spiritual influence in just a moment. The idea of an elder might be familiar to you, or it might have an entirely different meaning in your mind than what Matt has been describing. But an elder is one of the many ways gifts and skills are used to serve or volunteer inside and outside the local church. We serve to fulfill the great commandment to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus himself said he didn't come to be served, but to serve others. And to live a Christ-centered life, serving is a key ingredient in your spiritual growth. A foundational value for Blue Oaks is serving in an area of your unique abilities and interests because we believe it's what's best for you. God made you with gifts and skills and whatever you're passionate about doing, God can use to influence others. There are more opportunities than ever to find where your giftedness fits in God's bigger picture, no matter your age, season of life, or where you are on your spiritual journey. You can find out more about serving opportunities or begin a conversation to explore how God can use your unique skill set 
At blueoakschurch.org, click the latest news and scroll down to serve. <laughs> Don't worry, you're not committing to anything, just expressing interest. Let's rejoin Matt as we learn more about this role called elder. All right, now let's look at the marks of spiritual influence and the things that make someone a potential elder, uh, starting with verse six now. An elder must live a blameless life. All right, let me pause here for just a moment. Do you think you're out of the running just on that first statement? Or maybe you think you're okay, but your spouse is out of the running now? Uh, let me say something about this word blameless. Uh, what Paul is saying is that elders need to have a public reputation that's not marked by a scandal or by a lack of integrity. Again, in some churches, elders are chosen on a real bad ground. You know, Sometimes it's just whoever is real powerful and people just kind of automatically make them elders. Uh, sometimes it's just who's real popular and the elder board becomes a popularity contest and that gets churches in real trouble. It takes maturity on the part of the congregation to have appropriate elders. And Paul is saying, no matter what a person's other gifts, power, or qualifications are, a church cannot put a person in a position of influence where the person has character flaws that could make a mockery of the church's mission. So that's his first word on the subject. And then he goes on, and you, you could really put the qualities uh, that he talks about here in three categories. The first one is in the category of uh, personal and family life. Verse six, he must be faithful to his wife and his children must be believers who don't have a reputation for being wild or rebellious. He must be faithful to his wife. Some translations say he must be the husband of one wife. Now I wanna say a word about this phrase. This is one of those passages where well-meaning Christians disagree with each other on how to interpret it. Uh, it could be read as Paul saying, anyone who's divorced could not be an elder, especially if they're remarried. It could be read as Paul saying that women could not be elders. Uh, it could be read that you couldn't be married again if you were widowed, because then you would have two wives. It could be read that you couldn't be single, because then you wouldn't be a husband of a wife, uh, which would disqualify Jesus and the apostle Paul himself from being elders. Here's the deal. I don't think Paul is saying any of these things. The context here is Paul is concerned about ethical and character issues. Uh, that's the context he's writing in. He's writing in a day when uh, polygamy and promiscuity were so common that the ancient Roman ethicist Seneca said, only the ugly are faithful. <laughs> now, I believe what Paul is saying here is an elder who is married you don't necessarily have to be married to be an elder, but an elder who is married must live in a faithful, monogamous relationship that honors God. A person living in violation of this cannot have spiritual influence, uh, not positive spiritual influence, and must not serve as an elder. I believe the heart of what Paul is saying here is authentic spiritual influence begins at home. And this teaching is very relevant to our day because we do not live in a world that, influ that influences people to form great marriages. Like our society from athletes to actors to politicians advocate infidelity, dishonesty, sexual promiscuity, and the list could go on and on. And it was a similar culture that Paul wrote to when he said husbands and wives must be faithful to one another. 
Elders in the church should be models of faithfulness, integrity, loyalty, and truth-telling in a marriage. All right, and then Paul goes on to speak about parenting. And again, this does not mean that your marriage or your children must be perfect. Uh, God's children, Adam and Eve, were not perfect. Children can choose to rebel. Uh, Paul's primary concern in this category is what we would talk about as authenticity. People who know me the best are the people who see me in my most unguarded moments, the people I live with. The litmus test of authenticity is my spiritual influence on people who see me the most and know me the best. That's the litmus test. So what kind of fingerprints are you leaving on the people you live with? Let me ask you this question. What is one doable next step that could help you leave positive spiritual fingerprints on the people you're closest to? Just one doable next step. Maybe it's praying with your kids on a regular basis. Maybe it's reading something of spiritual benefit with your spouse or with a roommate, if you have a roommate. Maybe it's saying sorry more, uh, seeking forgiveness for those uh, from those that you live with or work with. Uh, maybe like Paul with Titus, you can challenge the people that you're closest to to have an experience that would create growth. Maybe you can serve someone in need together. Uh, maybe you can start a small group together. What's one step you could take? Well, Paul says, when you're looking for an elder, and I would say just generally, a person of spiritual influence, uh, you look at what kind of spiritual fingerprints they're leaving around the house. Spiritual influence requires home-tested authenticity. And then Paul goes on in verse seven to talk about a second category. In this section, he's basically saying, check out their character. Like spiritual influence requires integrity of character. An elder is a manager of God's household, so he must live blame, a blameless life. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. He must not be a heavy drinker, violent, or dishonest with money. So he runs through five negative uh, categories that have the capacity to destroy positive spiritual influence. And here's what I want to do here. And this will just take a couple minutes. Uh, grab something to write with. I just want to do a quick character check, just looking at these first five qualities Paul mentions. I'll walk through each one of them uh, and just, just write down one through five. If you have a piece of paper and a pen, just write one through five on your notes. And I'll ask you to rate yourself uh, on these five areas over the last year. Just honestly rate yourself in each one of these categories. If you find yourself growing in a category, uh, give yourself a one. Uh, if you're neutral, the same place you were about a year ago, uh, give yourself a two. And if you're sliding backward, uh, give yourself a three. So one is growing, two is neutral, three is backwards movement. Okay, the first one is arrogant or proud. Uh, one translation says overbearing. Uh, do you find yourself getting more judgmental toward others these days or more accepting? Are you more able to rejoice when someone else gets the spotlight? Or do you find yourself suddenly trying to make sure other people know how impressive you are? Do you take credit for the accomplishments of your team or do you pass on the credit to others? Do you need to be seen as the most significant person in your family or your team or your organization? How do you respond when people compliment someone else on something you do really well? So where are you at relative to pride? Give yourself a 
a one if you're growing in humility, a two if you're the same as you were last year, or three if uh, backward movement is happening in this area. All right, number two is quick-tempered. Must not be quick-tempered, Paul says. How often do you just let it fly? Uh, Do you use words to hurt people these days? Are you growing in your ability to show patience and gentleness? Are you less likely to engage in patterns like avoidance or uh, passive aggressiveness? So where are you on this one? One, growing. Two, neutral. Uh, Three, backwards movement. All right, the third one is drinking. Must not be a heavy drinker, Paul says. Heavy drinking was a common problem in Paul's day, and let's not pretend that it's not in ours. Uh, And you can include in this category any addictive patterns. Do they have a stronger or weaker grip on you? Uh, Are you in a deepening relationship of accountability or just trying to go out on your own? How are your habits? One, two, or three? The next quality has to do with the misuse of power. Uh, Paul says, not violent. Uh, he's, just, he's not just talking about physical violence, but to use uh, force or intimidation to get your own way. If you get people with power issues serving as elders, I mean, that's a real serious problem. So how are you? Would people say you're more or less of a servant these days? Do you ever try to use people or intimidate people? How's your stubbornness quotient? Uh, do you have a need to be in control? Do you have a problem receiving instruction gracefully? Just rate yourself, one, two, or three. If you haven't even gotten a pen out because you don't like to be told what to do, give yourself a three on this one. Uh, If you're sitting next to someone like that and they still haven't gotten out a pen, uh, give them a three on your paper. Just write their name down and put three next to it. All right, the last negative character quality Paul talks about here is dishonest with money. Are all your financial dealings, expense accounts, taxes, business ethics, all above reproach? Let me get real concrete on this one. Are you giving a greater share of your money away these days? Or a smaller share than you were a year ago? Or is it about the same? Is your desire to give greater? Or is it the same? Now just look at this character check and you'll see if you're growing in such a way that you're likely to have the right kind of spiritual influence. All right, Paul lists negative qualities in verse seven. In verse eight, Paul goes on and gives what is really the flip side, the positive qualities that ought to replace them. Rather, he must enjoy having guests in his home and he must love what is good. He must live wisely and be just. He must live a devout and disciplined life. Uh, Paul is saying, not only does spiritual influence begin at home, but spiritual influence requires integrity of character. We need to have those kinds of people as elders, and we ought to all aspire to that. And then look at verse 9. Paul says about elders, he must have a strong belief in the trustworthy message he was taught. Then he will be able to encourage others with wholesome teaching and show those who oppose it where they are wrong. Uh, Spiritual influence and and elders especially require a mind that is immersed in scripture and a heart that is gripped by love for people. A mind immersed in scripture and a heart gripped by love for people uh, that encourages them as well as rebukes them. Uh, This is what's required. It's not just a, a bunch of knowledge about scripture, but it's using that to benefit people. 
I think one of the real specific contributions to immaturity in many churches in our day is simply biblical illiteracy. And so I wanna ask you, are you reading the Bible? Are you immersing yourself in it? As a church, we have got to be immersed in scripture. We will not reach our potential of spiritual influence without that. We also have to use a biblical mind to encourage others. Paul says elders will be able to encourage others. I read something recently from a book called Becoming a Person of Influence. Uh, this is by a teacher whose name was Helen Roswell, and she had a student named Mark Etland uh, back when he was in middle school. Uh, she writes how it's not easy to be a middle school teacher. There's a lot of burnout there. This is what Helen wrote. One Friday, things did not feel right. Uh, we worked hard on the new concept. The students were frustrated with themselves and edgy with one another. I had to stop this crankiness before it got out of hand. So I asked them to list the names of other students in the room on two sheets of paper, leaving a space between each name. And then I told them to think of the nicest things they could say about each other um, and write it down. It took the remainder of the class period to finish the assignment. But as the students left the room, each one handed me the paper. That Saturday, I wrote down the name of every student on a separate sheet of paper, and I listed what everyone else said about that individual. On Monday, I gave each student his or her list. Some of them ran two pages long. Before long, the entire class was smiling. Really? I heard whispered. I never knew that meant anything to anyone. I didn't know others liked me so much. No one ever mentioned those papers in class again. I never knew if they were discussed after class or with their parents. It didn't matter. The exercise had accomplished its purpose. The students were happy with themselves and one another. Uh, many years later, she writes, I was visiting my parents and my dad said to me that Ecklins called last night. Really, I said, I haven't heard from them for several years. I wonder how Mark is. Uh, dad responded quietly, Mark was killed in the war. The funeral is tomorrow and his parents would like it if you could attend. Helen writes, as I stood there by the coffin, one of the soldiers who had acted as a pallbearer came up to me. Were you Mark's math teacher, he asked. I nodded as I continued to stare at the coffin. Mark talked about you a lot, he said. After the funeral, most of Mark's former classmates gathered for lunch. Mark's mom and dad were there, obviously waiting for me. I wanna show you something, his father said, taking a wallet out of his pocket. They found this on Mark when he was killed. We thought you might recognize it. Opening the billfold, he carefully removed two worn pieces of notebook paper that had obviously been taped and folded and refolded many times. I knew without looking that the papers were the ones on which I had listed all the good things each of Mark's classmates had said to him. Thank you so much for doing that, Mark's mother said. As you can see, Mark treasured it. Mark's classmates started to gather around us. Chuck smiled rather sheepishly and said, I still have my list. It's in the top drawer of my desk at home. John's wife said, John asked me to put his in our wedding album. I have mine too, Marilyn said. It's in my diary. And then Vicki, another classmate, reached into her pocketbook, uh, took out her wallet and showed her worn and frazzled list of the group. I carry this with me all, at all times, Vicki said, without batting an eyelash. I think we all saved our lists. That's when I finally sat down and cried, Helen writes. What would make so many adults hold on to a little piece of paper 
that they had received so many years before as kids, carrying it with them everywhere they went, even into a battle halfway around the world. I believe it's because the soul lives on words of love. It's like the body lives on food and water. The soul lives on words of love. One day around 2000 years ago, a pretty lonely guy named Titus on the island of Crete got a piece of paper. Uh, he picked it up and he started reading it and he saw what Paul wrote to him, my true son, my son. I have a feeling Titus carried that piece of paper with him for a long time. And you know what? You can write words like that for someone. You can become uh, the words that breathe life into a human soul. You can do that right now. There may be someone in your life who desperately needs to hear words of encouragement from you. There's someone who needs to be prayed for. There's someone who needs to get a note. There's someone who feels real lonely, who needs to hear that they're loved by God and they're loved by another human being. You can be that for a person in your life who desperately needs to receive love and encouragement. Your fingerprints of love and encouragement can be on people all around you. And you can become a person of influence in someone's life. All right, let me pray for you. And then Michaela and the team will lead us in a closing song. God, I pray for our church as we go through this series that you would help us to reflect on our own lives and figure out where we need to uh, make some changes so that we can actually have the kind of influence in this community that you want us to have. Help us to be become a church of irresistible influence where people see in us uh, our character that's being formed and how we're becoming uh, more and more like Jesus Christ, that we're doing and saying the things that Jesus would do if he was in our place. And, and that just becomes attractive to people. Help us to become that kind of church. Help us to reflect on uh, some of these areas in our own lives so that we can make whatever changes need to be made so that we can become more like Christ, so that we can have greater influence in this community. But very practically, God, I pray that you would just help us right now uh, to help us to think of someone that we could write a note to, someone who we could speak words to that would encourage them, that would lift them up, that would breathe life into them. And may we do that. Uh, may we have that kind of influence in people right now. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, if you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. Uh, for directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today. Uh, and we hope to see you on Sunday soon.